Hey gang, welcome to the Your Basket is Empty pod, a space where I sit down with agencies, brands, and original e-com thinkers to discuss their journey, practical advice, and how they're navigating the current digital landscape. Your Basket is Empty is also a bi-monthly industry newsletter that covers the most interesting e-com and direct consumer news, interviews with original e-com thinkers, a jobs board, an event listing section, and a playlist. Go check that out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Will Lynch. He heads up marketing and partnerships at Shopify Agency Noticed. He's also the founder and editor of e-commerce news. And in this episode, we're doing something a little different. We are looking at the news over the last kind of two weeks and we are dissecting it. So not dissimilar to something you might hear on other great podcasts like Pivot or Morning Brew News. Uh, we discuss ThreadUp's resale report and the general state of circular platforms, Gymshark's approach to retail and where Omnichannel is at, Vice's demise, Kiki, a new Web3 beauty brand, and Dom Holland's new startup, Trady. If you like what you heard on this episode, please let me know because this is a bit of a test and if we get some good feedback, we're going to do it again. Before we get into it, this episode is supported by my friends at Recharge. Recharge has helped over 15,000 e-commerce merchants grow and retain their customer base through subscriptions, allowing the brands to grow their business by increasing lifetime value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. If you thought subscriptions were on the decline, listen to this. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. For anyone running an e-commerce store, customer retention has been at the forefront of your mind, and subscriptions are one of the best ways to meet your goals. Create seamless subscription experiences for your community and turn one-time shoppers into long-term customers with Recharge. Learn more at rechargepayments.com slash basket. Enjoy the episode. Will, welcome to the pod. How are you? Where are you? I'm, I'm good, mate. How are you? I am in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. Yeah. Nice, uh, nice. Very green, bit cold, but nice. Uh, uh, you know, that might describe the rest of the UK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It feels a bit green and cold down here in, in sunny Walthamstow. Yeah. So as I mentioned uh, before the pod started rolling, we're doing something a little bit different today and you and I are going to tackle some e-com or e-com adjacent, I think. I think maybe e-com is too specific news, not dissimilar to many other reputable pods out there that probably people listen to like Pivot or Morning Brew News. So... Let's start off. You wanted to talk about circular content or the circular economy. Tell me about it. Yeah. So I saw a report by um, FredUp. They have announced that um, 2022, secondhand retail sales uh, globally reached $177 billion, um, which is up 28% from the year before. And the report predicts that by 2027, it's going to be $351 billion. So, Really big opportunity, I think, for e-com brands, but also quite nice and, um, uh, yeah, a bit, a bit of hope uh, for the future now that we're seeing kind of more of the these younger generation Gen Zs up um, buying into secondhand products. I think it was uh, 83% of Gen Zs said they would purchase from secondhand over firsthand. Interesting. Interesting. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so let's let's break that down a bit. I know there's some examples there. Do you want to run through them? Who have like partnering up with ThreadUp or come on some of the like circular economy type? Yeah, I think the first the first one was um, Lizzo's brand Yitty. Um, they have uh, they're doing like a resale thing, so people can go back onto the website and, and uh, resell any of the products that they bought um, through their shapewear. Uh, brand. There's a ton out there as well that's like come up this year. So American Eagle have done exactly the same. Um, they are working with uh, Fred up again to do this. 
and Sea Salt have just launched uh, their own um, one called Reskinned, um, which I'm very excited about because my partner loves stuff from Sea Salt. Oh, interesting. So let's talk through the mechanics of it then. So uh, I think this is good territory for like loyalty program stuff, right? So I buy something from a brand and <laughs> I can wear it till it dies and give it to a secondhand shop or whatever, which I think is actually quite interesting because I've seen some data that giving clothes back to charities whilst initially might seem like a great and moral thing to do. The reality of that, I think is quite fucked up. Like, cause there's just the volume of clothes that secondhand places get is like insane. And I'm pretty sure it's one of the big ones. I don't know, St. Vinny's or whoever. But like, so they, they, they package it up and they sell it to places like Africa and Africa skim off the good stuff and then they just burn the rest of it. So oh, right. it might look like a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it might look like, I, I don't know the exact stats on this sort of stuff, but I, I've listened to a podcast or seen a docker one or, or whatever. So yeah, so let's take it back. So, so this is a kind of like antidote to that, right? But so like you wear the clothes, they get to a point where they're like, maybe not, not usable, but you want to put them back into the economy and I get some loyalty. Would you buy stuff secondhand from a brand over going and buying it from like a Depop? Where do you think the line is there? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an element of like having to build a community around that first and foremost, isn't there? Um, I know uh, Lucy and Yak, the dungaree brand uh, in the UK. Uh, yeah, 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 those guys. Yeah, I know them. They, uh, they started something uh, a while back where it was just simply a, like a Facebook group. They created a Facebook community and people could go on there and share and resell their, their items to each other. So I think there's definitely an element of community that's needed, which is obviously loyalty comes into it. Um, and just going back to your charity shop uh, thing, my mum manages charity shops and has always managed <laughs> charity shops. There you go. <laughs> and there is constant just rubbish. Like people drop stuff off that's just not usable and it has to go yeah. into the waste. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean... This is all secondhand, so yes, nice. definitely the target audience. I, I reckon that. So that's an interesting point. Then, though, like I wonder. So there's another company that that we haven't talked about here. I think they're called Trove. They may have like they may have rebranded, but they do something similar in this space, and they work with brands. And it would be good to just dissect how thread up because I'm not quite sure what they're doing, whether it's just the tech, but Trove do something similar in that they provide the kind of end-to-end secondhand marketplace service for brands. So I know Patagonia use them. So when you as a Patagonia customer are like, okay, I want to you know, send this back. I think you either get loyalty or you get money, whatever it is. Trove take on the kind of end-to-end experience. So I think as far as they give you the package or whatever it is that you put the item in and send it back they like clean it they repair it they photograph it and then they provide the actual platform by which the new consumer buys it off but from what i understand it's it's a white labeled service so it looks and feels like patagonia but these guys are like kind of powering it behind the scenes is, is that what thread up are doing here they're like providing the tech to, to to sort of like facilitate this system yeah, I believe so. I'm not sure. Maybe a quick Google. I need to. <laughs> Should we pause the pod? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Let's keep going. But I think um, that, that 
that's probably where it like it's that's where it goes beyond a uh, Facebook marketplace, right? The marketplace is like providing the community element and the communication and the sort of peer to peer ability. But I think that's where these models either, you know, you know, die or win is like that seamless technology that kind of powers the whole thing, both from a logistics and then a user experience perspective. Yeah, I think there's different levels, isn't there? It's like anything with a with a project like this. Um, there's different levels of okay, how are we gonna start? Let's start with Facebook group. Let's yeah, start putting stuff on Depop, let's move into something like this. And then um the latest one, which I saw, was uh, you know the running shoe company on. Yes, those guys. Yes, they fucking just love those a, guys. Yeah, so they so they started a subscription model where you you basically pay thirty dollars a month, and then you get your shoes. And then when they run out, you just or when they when they're used up, you send them back. They recycle them, turn them into a new pair of shoes, and then send you those back. So it's yep. this entirely yep. circular economy. You're not having to pay out hundreds of dollars for a pair of shoes initially um and i think that's the next that's that next level which is yeah quite interesting got a cool tagline as well which is run recycle repeat which is cool run recycle repeat i fucking love those guys man (laughs) like i honestly think they're just such an underrated no one talks about them man like they're just such an underrated brand i think um jordan from we was talking about it on linkedin today and like their numbers are like super, super strong this quarter or whatever the earnings were, uh, the earnings report was. So, you know, from a business perspective, they, they, they like kill it. But I just think that they have really mastered that intersection of like product and brand. And I think one of the reasons is they're like performance first. So they're, they're first and foremost, they are a running, they are a running brand, you know, very similar to Nike that have, you know, cleverly sort of sidestepped into fashion. You know, like, and I think they've obviously understood and ridden the wave of this new whatever zeitgeist of like, you know, camping and hiking is cool now (laughs) where it wasn't like, you know, like those Salomon shoes, you know, all the fucking hipsters wear, like that was a total accident that they became popular. I read a cool article, I think hype beast about it or whatever, but they've like tapped into that kind of thing. And I think they're obviously a premium product, which kind of helps, but that kind of like, you know, they're just thinking about things like innovatively. And I think that circular economy type concept is like you say, it's, it's kind of the holy grail. It's like, it's so many interesting, cool DDC slash e-com concepts built into it. So it's circular economy, which is cool as a, like an overarching concept. Subscription, fucking good. Retention, insane. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of the ultimate. And I think what's fucking sick about those guys is this is just one element of, it's not like they're, people build a whole business just on that thing, right? This is just a, a small chunk yeah. of kind of what they do. It's just a one side piece. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said about the numbers, I think they were going to hit 1.9 billion this year. That's what they predicted and hitting. <laughs> Fucking insane. That is serious. <laughs> and I, I wonder though, so just to sort of round out the kind of circular economy thing, do you think that talking about the levels, it feels like, the more luxury you get, the more this stuff applies because of the value of the product, right? Like to the point where I suppose it tips over, not dissimilar into like, you know, sneaker stuff or like luxury handbags where it goes beyond just a circular economy thing. There's like intrinsic increased value in the product. So therefore, you know, you're making like profit on this stuff. That's kind of where it goes into a next level. But then, yeah, I'm supposed like, 
yeah, how do brands at the lower levels think about it? Maybe that's the way, like start with the marketplace, start with Depop. And then once you've got traction there, then you move into your own fully serviced marketplace, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's free to start a Facebook group, right? bit of time to, to manage it but you can easily find some vip customers and say hey do you want to manage this i'll give you a 20 percent discount for life um yeah i think especially especially the more up market you go the more you have to kind of commit to reducing your co2 levels or your, your yeah being more circular um because you're charging more you're charging more because there's more premium marketing behind it not necessarily because the product costs more to make yeah. I suppose there's also an interesting element of like volume, right? So there needs to be some sort of critical mass in the system for it to kind of work. So if your brand has only got four SKUs, <laughs> you've got like one SKU that's the, 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 the like upcycled secondhand version of it, it's probably not going to make sense. I think that's why there's probably interesting and loads of people are you know exploring it that within a multi-brand retailer concept, this makes loads of sense, right? So you, you're bringing back your multi-brand retailer option, but it's in a second-hand bucket. So the volume is, is just there. I suppose what's interesting about that then is you start to, you know, let's say, I don't know, like who's a big, cool online retailer, like a good hood, someone like that, right? Like London-based, like they could have a good hood secondhand kind of like marketplace, right? Which would be kind of cool. I suppose Urban Outfitters have kind of, kind of done this, but like at what point, yeah, do you then start to compete with like, maybe not John Lewis, but you're then competing with like other big online multi-brand retailers? Yeah. And are you just doing secondhand ones? Because then do you just not perfect into becoming a charity shop? Yeah, or, or eBay, which you probably don't want to compete with, right? Or Depop. Yeah. And then you probably, as a brand like that, you want to, your criteria for quality is probably a little bit higher than mm. somewhere like a charity shop. So you probably produce even more waste. Yeah. I think the answer is we just stop fucking buying shit. <laughs> 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 that's, that's how it works. Anyway, let's talk about the other, other thing that you wanted to touch on, and that was omnichannel content. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody knows Omnichannel. Everybody knows it's the most important thing uh, that brands should be kind of tapping into. Um, but I found it really interesting that Ben Francis, um, founder of Gymshark, uh, he outwardly said, you know, there's, uh, let me get the exact quote. When we take a step back and look at building a truly long-term brand, it's Omnichannel. There's a big opportunity mm-hmm. to step into the offline market in physical stores. I think that's really interesting coming from somebody who's, made a billion online yeah. uh, and that pure and pure play pure, pure play billion yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah I think that's very interesting and they obviously opened their flagship store in London last year October I think it was 18,000 square mm-hmm. foot which um, about the same size as your house isn't it Tim 18,000 <laughs> square foot <laughs> I fucking wish mate yeah, yeah, yeah. 18 square feet is the size of my house <laughs> Yeah, I reckon it's an interesting one, eh? Like, I've been talking to a few agencies about it and my thesis is, yeah, both from the brand perspective, which is this isn't like a fucking innovative thesis or whatever, but like Omnichannel is slightly untapped, I think, on both sides, right? I think Omnichannel is more uh, prevalent either in reality or prevalent in strategy that hasn't 
realized yet, then like brands think that they need to kind of be omnichannel. I think like the direct consumer kind of concept, I've talked a bit about it, is like, like what does it actually mean now, right? Like, can you be a pure play direct consumer brand? And I think there's so much interesting stuff to suggest that whilst, yes, that's a good channel maybe to start, that post in a post-COVID world where I still think the pent-up demand for in real life like stuff, connection, is still massive and growing, right? And like, so you got to go where kind of where the people are and then i think on the agency side which is interesting is there's not like any well there are but there's not many like omni-channel specialists right and i think as a as a as a consultant that works with brands and when i say consultant i mean an agency obviously consultants are probably more as well but like being able to look at that brand and go okay well let's take care of all of your customer touch points you know from your website to retail partners to a secondhand marketplace like we can do all of that like we are an omni-channel specialist i think that's an interesting spot for agencies to be in Mm. yeah especially with like shopify pos right they're doing a massive Mm -hmm. push on that that's what they want Mm -hmm. they want people to set up stores and and use their use all that software integrated yeah. I think so. And I think that, yeah, the barrier to entry on that front, like more generally, is obviously like way, way, way lower than what it was. I, though, what do you think? I reckon Omnichannel needs a rebrand. I think it sounds fucking boring. And that's probably <laughs> why it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone that talks about Omnichannel, I instantly assume they don't know what they're talking about because it's just a <laughs> <this word. laughs> I think I, I instantly, yeah, I agree. I feel like they don't know what they talk about and I fall asleep at the same time. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Let me just go and have a nap. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was called Bricks and Clicks, wasn't it, at some point? It was a, that, that term was getting... Yeah. I think that that, that scene, yeah. I remember doing a talk once and like the, the panel were talking about, I didn't know what they were talking about. I felt like a right idiot, like supposed to be somewhat of a e-commerce you know, I wouldn't say expert, but you know, someone of e-commerce knowledge. But it, I don't think, yeah, bricks and clicks quite captures it. Like omni-channel does, right? Like it, because you know, it feeds into the concept of like headless and shit like that, right? Like multiple, infinite touch points, right? Like yeah. voice, you know, stuff where you're interacting with you know physical things in the real world that have got an element of like you know content and commerce going on and. I mean, even to the fact, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit, like Web3 and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I suppose maybe like, interestingly, I'd be curious. There's also this argument, which I keep seeing, which I think is a valid one in terms of like general strategy of brands is like, just keep it simple as well. So maybe, you know, like when you start talking about, you know, omni-channel and especially like, you know, more um, like... <laughs> touch points that go beyond like into web three it's like okay well that's just noise let's just keep it simple right retail partner your own store and a direct consumer channel and if you can nail all of those that's a pretty good business model and i suppose gymshark's probably a good example of that do they do retail partners i don't think they do right you can't buy can you buy gymshark other than direct from gymshark either you know online or in store no i'm not sure i don't know Maybe, no, I mean, nah, surely you can. I reckon you can get her on ASOS and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Cool. Um, all right, I want to talk about some e-commerce adjacent news. And I think this is a big news story of the last, it's been going on for a little while, but I suppose the last 
24 hours to some degree. Now, this will probably, our show will be aired next week. So, you know, there'll be a little bit of time lapse. So hopefully nothing too massive in the e-com world happens between now and then. Otherwise, we're going to have to fucking re-record. <laughs> like Shopify explodes, you know. Um, but I want to talk about Vice Media. So Vice... And the article I've read, which is a BBC one, suggested motherboard of file for bankruptcy. But I think it's like the Vice Group or whatever. Uh, and then we sold to a bunch of lenders. So just to give you know listeners the backstory, which is pretty insane. They were once valued at $5.7 billion. That was back in 2017. That's God. dollars. And they're going to be taken over for like $225 million. So that's a pretty significant drop. However, and I'm not quite sure how this is going to play out, but whether that's the whoever's taking over, you know, the bankruptcy proceedings or whatever, uh, they expect to emerge financially healthy and stronger in two to three months, which I don't get. I think that's, that's like a, that's a, that's a Hail Mary. Um, but yeah, to get, to get a little bit deeper on the backstory. So Vice was launched in 1994 as a fringe magazine called Voice of Montreal by Shane Smith, Gavin McInnes and Suresh Alvey. Um, it was once heralded, I love this, as the van, as part of the vanguard of companies set to disrupt the traditional media landscape with edgy, youth-focused content spanning print, events, music, online TV, and feature films. Um, this was a good thing I saw in one of the articles that uh, that after a visit of the Brooklyn-based firm in 2012, uh, media mogul Rupert, old Rup Murdoch, tweeted, "Who's heard of Vice? Wild, interesting effort to interest millennials who don't read or watch established media. Global success." And <laughs> I knew that he invested, but uh, there were other. So Disney invested in uh, in those guys, and so, so did WPP. So I would have, I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall in those pitch meetings. But um, yeah, what's your general thoughts on? Vice. Vice as a whole and yeah, news. Yeah, I think um, it's tricky, isn't it? Like I think uh, I read somewhere the summary of this was uh, this is what happens when technology doesn't catch up uh, with mm. people. And so, you know, they're serving an audience that doesn't really care or it's not, it's not serving an audience and purpose anymore, but technology and competitors haven't haven't reached yet to, to fill that gap. Mm. Um, so you find that interesting. Obviously, e-commerce news. I'm not comparing device, but um, ah, come on, mate, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely the idea behind e-commerce news is that it's fast and quick and easy to produce yeah, content, yeah, yeah. and you know, and all of that kind of, which by the sounds of it is everything that has caused the problems with, with vice anyway in the first place. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I remember the first time I saw vice was in like 99. So it was the height of my skate rack career or skateboarding career, uh, in Adelaide, South Australia. And the one and only skate shop, there must've been, no, there was probably a few skate shops, but the like kind of main skate shop was in the Maya center. It was called daily grind and all the skate rats used to hang out there, but they nice. used to have, I remember vividly free vice magazines on the counter. And I remember I was like, I was quite in awe of it. Cause I've always been like into design and, you know, like, brand and stuff like that and there was this thing and one it was free which is cool but I remember the do's and don'ts they had these like pictures at the back of the magazine and they I couldn't I could never quite get my head around what they actually meant I felt like whenever I read Vice my observations or the feeling I got was like I'm not part of this club but I want to be in it I don't quite know what's going on I felt like out of the loop 
Um, but it was interesting, like more recently, my ex-partner and I, we like dug out her old copies of Vice from like the mid-noughties. And again, I was like reminded, like they really were at the vanguard of like cool. Um, and their Vice records was pretty good. They had a band, they had a cool band, like a grunge revivalist, 60s revivalist band. Fuck, what were they called? I can't remember. I'm going to look it up as we're doing this. Um, um, who were they? Da, da, da. Vice Records. Anyway, he'll come to me. Um, the, but the, yeah, the, they had cool video content. Like there was a cool, like ep- epically laded series on skateboarders and they, um, they had like a cool sub brand called Munchies, which was like their food stuff, like action Bronson. He had a thing called fuck that's delicious in Huang's world. They had another cool thing. Actually. I distinctly remember whenever I was going to a new city, I would look up vice's guide to a city and they had like cool shit going on. And they're like food thing on munchies, like munchies guide to like Glasgow, or whatever it was like always a cool, cool place to like find restaurants and stuff like that. But yeah, I wonder that concept of like, yeah, the technology gap is probably an interesting one. I wonder though, did they fail because, well, did they get too big so that they go too broad and they just needed this like juggernaut of content and then it becomes because they still had to remain sort of edgy. They like were competing with mainstream media, but not. And maybe Mm. their whole gonzo journalism thing just like didn't resonate with the audience. Um, Yeah. But I also yeah. find that they're like some of their stuff, it was like, I found it weird when they were trying to do serious stuff like cover wars. I was like, this doesn't, I'm like, where do they sit now in this kind of like landscape? But they did, they did like, they did do like cool but serious stuff, didn't they? Where they would like, you know, uh, interview a hitman and there'd be like a series around that. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. And that, like, that's not something I would watch, but it was well produced. And um, it, it, yeah, it, it was well produced. And I think though, at some, at one point that stuff was cool. That, that parody thing that you sent me just before this was fucking hilarious <laughs> though. Like, you know, like Justin Ketterman put it up my ass and now I'm speaking to a terrorist, you know, like, <laughs> whatever that was. Like, <laughs> yeah. But like, I feel that kind of concept like was cool back in 2011 or whatever, but then it just didn't seem to resonate as much. I don't know. Maybe, maybe cause we get older or whatever and it just, doesn't seem to be as, as interesting. Maybe it's because it, it was long form as well. Like we know, don't we? We know short form content performs really well now, um, especially within Gen Z. So maybe it was because the, yeah. the form was too long. Well, it's probably, and there's like loads of people talking about it, you know, far more knowledgeable on media than, than us, but like ad supported media is having a hard time because of streaming and social, right? And like, yeah. that's a really good point that our attention spans are pretty small. And I mean, like TikTok's fucking addictive. Like who's, who's watching, obviously <laughs> who's watching TikTok versus vice videos, right? Like yeah. nobody, obviously. I mean, everyone rather. So yeah. Anyway, I think it's, I think it's to round it out. It's a sad day. It was once a very, very cool institution and now it's not so cool and, and it's gone. Um, the other thing I was keen to talk about, a couple of them, we'll, we'll kind of round it out with those two, but and this was an e-common news. Big shout out to your your uh, fledging media uh, empire, e-common news. 
Uh, and it was the Kiki Web Three uh, kind of beauty story, which I was I was particularly interested in. So, uh, to give the, you know listeners the backstory, so Kiki it's a new Web Three ready beauty brand, and they're putting community first, putting them in the driving seat, and allowing them to vote on products before they go into production. So, their first product, which is pretty nail graffiti is a one-handed clickable pen with an embedded NFC chip that rewards users with loyalty points every time they change their color. The polishes come in a bunch of colors and users can vote on 10 potential colors to determine which comes next. And the action voting uh, accrues loyalty points and, and translates into discounts, et cetera, et cetera. I've got some thoughts on it, but what's your initial take on this? Yay or nay? Uh, yay, but not long-term. And I think if anybody tries to copy them, it won't work. Interesting. So you don't think there's a big moat around this type of concept? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's me with my tinfoil hat. But if somebody gave me some makeup <laughs> um, that was going to track every time I used it, but mm. I think it's interesting. I, I, I'm 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 probably in agreement in that I'm not bullish. I'm not bullish necessarily on Web three based loyalty concepts more broadly. My mm. sense is that. I can't quite get my head around why you don't just use traditional technology to power them. And what was interesting in the, you know, in the e-commerce article was there was a mention of another startup, Neednide.co, French startup, yeah. and they're doing the same concept. So non-Web3 beauty brand where fans can submit ideas based on skin and hair issues. And if the team like them, they put them back to the community and say, hey, here's a new product that you guys have suggested you like. What do you reckon? And if that gets 2,000 votes, uh, over the course of three months, um, the person that initiated gets 1500 bucks, and then they put it into a lab to be formulated and it's a beta version and then it's tested by by the group and then optimized on their feedback. And I think that if it goes into full production, the person like gets 10% of the profits. So I'm like, that does make sense as a concept, but there's no Web3 going on there. So why do you, why do you need the, the Web3 element? Like, you know. Uh, I assume to get investors on board, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what was interesting about that article? I thought, I thought they're like definitely touching on all of the like um, the hype like concepts right now. So it was Web three, and then the production was AI based, which I thought was very, very interesting. Didn't really go into detail as to what like artificial intelligence was being used on the production front, but yeah, that's an interesting point. Is it a an investor play versus a consumer value prop? I, I think it's a good. Um, it's a good idea, right? Like, play around with Web3, play around with AI, get it out there in, in, in the wild. Because that might spark an idea that actually uh, is really exciting and, and changes e-com in general. Not that, that sounds like I'm saying that this will fail, but uh, that's not the case. <laughs> You've heard it, you heard it here first. Your basket is empty pod, e-com news editor-in-chief. I think... Well, the, yeah, I mean, I thought what was interesting uh, to take the slightly different angle to your tinfoil hat worries, which are valid, but that <laughs> NFC chip thing, which I didn't quite realize, but it, it, it's sort of function within that like story is kind of cool. So instead of rewarding you for purchasing stuff, every time you use the product, you get loyalty points. I thought... Mm. That's kind of cool, actually, right? Like that's kind of like an innovative way, innovative way of like looking at loyalty, which I think is sort of underinvested in more generally. Yeah, wouldn't you be like, right? I need to, I need a new one now, and just sit there clicking the pen till you got enough yeah, points. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> like how? 
Blows, but yeah, how badly is that going to get abused? Yeah, just like sitting there <laughs> clicking it, like fucking racking up like <laughs> thousands of points. Like, I want to be the VIP. I want to be the VIP. Uh, okay, final story before we round out the episode because we're kind of nearly at time. So I wanted to talk about our mate Dom Holland or my mate Dom Holland, a compatriot of mine. Um, so for people that don't know, he's the bloke who founded Fast Checkout and he's back with a new AI that was very prominent in the uh, marketing material, AI-powered platform that empowers tradies to make websites. So just a little bit of backstory for people that don't know. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a universal term, but it's, it's definitely an interesting concept given I'm from Oz and now they live in the UK. But a tradie in Australia is a tradesperson. So it's like a plumber, a bricklayer, sparky or electrician or builder, etc. And in Australia... There's a couple of things. One, that's quite a, it's not a prestigious profession, but it's a very, very well-respected profession, which I don't think is common necessarily across the world. And the second thing, which I think is really interesting, like tradies have got this like certain connotation. So they're typically quite laddie and they are <laughs> like, the caricature of them is they consume a lot of meat pies and drink a lot of Coke and iced coffee. And for those that don't know, this is a very interesting fact. Iced coffee I believe this is true in Adelaide or South Australia where I'm from. I believe it's the only place in the world where iced coffee, that, that, that there is a drink that is more consumed than Coke and it is iced coffee and it's this stuff and it's made by this brand called Farmers Union and it's fucking delicious. And tradies are like synonymous with like the 600 mil carton of like iced coffee. It's like <laughs> synonymous. So again, adding to the backstory. So, so I think his, his thing's kind of interesting, right? Because I suppose as a platform, like tradies, okay, they got this connotation. I would have thought they're like generally potentially not very technologically literate or like te technological, technologically first, but it could probably work. For the backstory though, so fast checkout like went down in flames last year. Um, he mentions in the, media, in, in the video that um, uh, they were like one of the first casualties of the kind of market turned down. I think that may have been right. Like the news then fast broke, there was a bit of a turning point and not to say they were part of it, but I think they were potentially one of the first casualties and like, oh shit, you know, startups are burning too much cash and, you know, we've moved beyond a low interest rate environment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but interestingly, there's kind of speculation about how we ran that business. And I saw an interesting quote that one former employee said that it was like, how quickly can we set money on fire? That's what it was like working at Fast. And I think that paints an interesting picture and it's kind of hard to tell whether is that just, you know, here's loads of VC money, burn it. Like that, that was the kind of the strategy or was there something a little bit more maybe dubious or reckless going on with those guys? I don't know. On top of that, just to round out the backstory, there's also an interesting NPR article, uh, which I'll drop in the show notes about the demise of his original business in Australia and his reincarnation in Silicon Valley with, with Fast. And, you know, I don't know the bloke, but like, you know, from all these articles, I'd say NPR is a relatively reputable, you know, media outlet. Like it's all a bit dubious and he seems like a bit of a slick fundraiser and schmoozer. But yeah, what's your general take on this? I mean, I do, I do remember when Fast went under. Um, we may have been at the same conference when it got announced, uh, like an e-com conference. Um, and that news spread. And everybody was, you know, there was rumours about how they were spending the money on advertising. Like, is it Zambuis? Somebody said they put a substantial amount of money into Zambuis advertising. 
Potentially. They like they were like partnering up. There was a thing where he like rocked up to some event like in a fucking NASCAR or something like hanging out the window <laughs> like a maniac. Like, I mean, but I get it. Like that's, you know, straight out of the fucking Richard Ransom book. So it's like yeah. a well-tested method. But yeah. What do you think about this new platform then? Do you think it's got legs? A lot of my mates are tradies. Um, and the type on the keyboards with one finger. Yeah. yeah uh, yes. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> potentially it would have to have a really, really good user uh, experience in the back end and not be too complicated and not too customized. Um, but yeah, I think when I first started building websites maybe 10 years ago, um, you know, I was pitching like plumbers and, and, uh, mm car mechanics i've got a weird amount of car mechanics uh, on my client yeah, list but all very like the only reason why i was building their website is because they were not able to they didn't have that te- that technical skill set it wasn't that yeah it was doing anything special um so yeah i'm not sure i think if 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 they build out the user experience properly i think there's a there's definitely a um a winner there but things like wix and squarespace are already out there so it has to be yeah easier to use than that I think probably what's interesting, and I haven't researched it too much, but he seems to be providing the kind of back end like booking technology as well, which I think is is a bit of an interesting concept, right? Because like, let's say you're using a Wix or a Squarespace or a WordPress, sure, front end's good. But then when someone wants to actually book, sure, they can make a booking. But the thing that would be the pain or it would be the fidelity that happens beyond that, right? So like you book a time, but you might want to do a little bit of like back and forth. So if they provide some sort of like messaging thing where you can message, you know, the, the client and the trader can message directly through the platform and change times around, obviously take payments, deal with, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. That probably is an interesting use case and like a USP. Is it launching in the U uh, in Australia? I think so. Yeah. That, that only because it's called like tradey. I do think, and he's Australian. I think there was an element. Yeah. Because I, I mean, we renovated this house uh, God, a couple of years ago now. And, you know, our initial builder said, uh, I don't have a diary. I'll just turn up uh, one day. Uh, was nice. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know whether even if, you know, because we've got Google Calendar, don't we? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not dissimilar to the Web3 concept, right? You can patch together a lot of very, very good tech and just make this happen. And it's more about like, yeah. if I'm, if I'm, I'm a tradie who's like motivated and, you know, I want to run a good business, I'd probably have this shit figured out already, right? Like I'd have a website, I'd have a booking platform, like all that stuff already exists. So I'm, I'm curious, like if they're sort of like the value prop is to, all the others and therefore like your mate who rocked up just like unannounced like what's the adoption of them going to be like i'm assuming though maybe if we looked at it from a demographic perspective if you were to assume that like a more gen z millennial cohort of tradies of which there are many this could be an interesting play for them right like you know if it's if it is more sort of like digital first they're probably more digital first yeah. They don't want to create a website, but they do want like a digital experience. Like I think this is kind of interesting. I think the big competitor there, therefore, it's going to be the marketplaces, you know, an Upwork or whoever. You know, there's going to be some sort of like tradey version of that, specifically probably in Australia or wherever. Yeah, and you know, that's the classic Amazon versus Shopify debate, right? Like you're in the marketplace in a sea of people, and you'll probably have to pay to get to the number one spot, 
or you have your direct consumer channel and you own the data and the experience, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. Check, is check a trade a thing in Australia? Potentially. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. If, if not, there's definitely equivalent of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But interesting. I definitely think if you're building any business, it needs to be niche. And that seems to be a very niche kind of channel that is going down. So, yeah. I agree. I think the niche is interesting. Right, mate. I think that's a good time to end the pod. So this is the first one of potentially many. So anyone listening, get in contact with me or Will and let us know what you think. Um, Will, thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Take care. There you go, folks. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we go, a quick word from my sponsor, Recharge, the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants launch and scale subscription offerings. Discover how your business can harness the power of recurring revenue and seamless subscription commerce at rechargepayments.com slash basket. Before we go, if you like the pod, please like, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time.